Hey y'all, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel and Hookset. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal is to be a blessing to everyone who listens as you continue on your journey of faith. It's also our hope that you'll be encouraged to find a church to belong to so you can plug into that congregation and bless others with the gifts and experiences that God has entrusted you with. Well, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you and encourages you to get out there and be the blessing. God bless. So today, uh, we're going to talk about um, Ebenezer. And how many of you know what Ebenezer, Ebenezer is? What's the movie called? Scrooge? No, that's what, what is it called? A Christmas Carol. This is not that. This is not a Christmas Carol. We're not talking about Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer is a really fascinating word, and we're going to talk about that word uh, as we go through. So the, the first question is, what is an Ebenezer? Pat, you raise your hand really fast. Well, I don't know if he was a high priest at a time, but I know that it was a memorial. Okay, so we're, we're on different pages. Sorry, buddy. So in the Old Testament, I should have said that, in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Samuel, that's where you, uh, that's where you find this word Ebenezer. And, and there's hymns, right? Have you, every now and then you'll sing a hymn and it'll say something about an Ebenezer. And most of the people in the congregation are singing along, and they're like, what does Ebenezer Scrooge have to do with Jesus? Like, I've got no idea what this means. Like, and so I want to ask, what is an Ebenezer? And answer, what is an Ebenezer? An Ebenezer is, is a memorial, right? It's some kind of memorial for a point in time for something that has happened, right? So, um, for instance, this, this would be a memorial... And she's not looking up yet. This is a memorial. What is that? It's an engagement ring. So an engagement reminds you that you're connected to somebody, right? Uh, and I have a wedding band. That reminds me that I'm connected to my wife, right? This is sort of like an Ebenezer. It's a memorial. It's something that reminds you and it has significance and it has meaning And congratulations, Nick and Chloe. Uh, That was my daughter Chloe's hand, by the way, in case you couldn't figure that out. I was going to put my first picture, but her nails hadn't been yet done, and you could see the little thing, and I'm like, I better download the other picture. Um, But anyways, when you get married, it's an an Ebenezer. It's something that reminds you of a moment in time that's really important, folks. And and when you're married and you have that ring on your finger, you're going to go through some tough times. And that ring on your finger should take you back, right? It should take you back to when you loved your wife, to when you loved your husband. It should take you back to those better times to remind you that better times can come, right? You follow? And so with the engagement of Nick and Danielle, or as most of you call her, Chloe, um, I have a few instructions for you. I do this not only for my daughter, but for, and future son-in-law. 
but for, for others. Um, so be kind, right? Don't keep nagging them about the date. And when they are married, don't keep nagging them about when they're having kids, because I'm not ready. And that's the most important thing, I think. I mean, she shouldn't have kids until I'm ready. Um, but Chloe is not a big hugger. So you can walk up to her. She wants to show her ring off. She's all excited about it. It's beautiful. I mean, it's almost as nice as Trisha's ring, which I told Nick, you know, don't, don't outdo the father-in-law, buddy. You got to take it easy. Uh, so she's more than happy to go, see my ring, kiss the ring. Uh, but she's not a big hugger. So you'll know who you are if you're allowed to hug her. That's how she's been since she was like a little baby. Um, she, you want to get on Chloe's bad side, get into her space. <laughs> so I got to learn that a long time ago. Nick is a hugger, though. Nick is a hugger. And so feel free, all of you strangers, everybody, feel free to give Nick a nice <laughs> big hug. Um, and you might even kiss him on the cheek or something. Give him a big hug. Make sure he's incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, but we are blessed because Nick came to Christ here in this church a few years ago, roughly. Uh, and he's been discipled in this church by Peter and by Angel. And, and you know, when Chloe was a uh, little girl, we're on 13 or 14 or however old she was, um, I didn't want to let her date. And I prayed about it. And God said, disciple her boyfriend. And so I look at this as just a tremendous opportunity to be a part of Nick's life and to mentor him in the Lord Jesus. And, and that's what my father-in-law did for me many, many years ago. He mentored me, and we have a great relationship today, and I consider Ken one of my fathers in the Lord because of that. And so I'm, I'm proud of both of you guys. I'm proud of you doing it right. Uh, Nick asked for my blessing twice, I think. Um, the first time, we went out, he took me out to lunch. And he's trying to trick me. He's like, hey, I just want to talk to you. I'm like, well, I'm uncomfortable. And he said, me too, thank you. And so I said, I, I wonder, um, are you asking me out to lunch because you're trying to figure out how to break it off with Chloe and you're afraid that you don't want to hurt her feelings? <laughs> he said, well, no, uh, actually, quite the opposite. Uh, and it was great. I enjoy making people squirm a little bit like that. Now, let's move on. Speaking of squirming, let's go over to 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel. Turn in your Bibles. Turn in your digital Bibles. Read along with me. I know it's on the screen, guys, but let's take a look at this. In the word of the Lord, and I'm sorry, in the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. Now, he just said Ebenezer was a memorial, Right? Well, we're going to find a, a few more interesting details about this Ebenezer thing, okay? Uh, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before these Philistines? Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us so that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hands of our enemies. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is a really important piece of, uh, it's a really important artifact to Israel. It went with Israel and Joshua uh, won great 
battles with the Ark of the Covenant present. And so they began to think that the power was in the Ark. It was like this superstitious thing. They were almost worshiping the Ark. And so they didn't go up and, and ask. They just said, go get the Ark. And the people went to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubims and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And so Israel went to get the Ark. They didn't ask the high priest. They told them, we want the Ark. The high priest's two sons, Phinehas and Hophni, not Phinehas and Fur, but the famous cartoon, Phinehas and Hophni, were wicked and evil men. And, and the first prophecy of Samuel was against Eli's house. So, so these two guys that grabbed the ark and said, yeah, sure, whatever, let's go. They weren't good men, and they weren't good men of God. So they, they grabbed the ark, and then we're going to drop down to verse 10. So the Philistines fought. Now the Israelites have the ark, and Israel was defeated again. And every man fled to his tent, and there was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, and this was the prophecy, Hophni and Phinehas Phineas died. So the ark didn't, didn't help them out very well, did it? In fact, they were humiliated. They were absolutely brutalized. And this place uh, of defeat where they lost was right there by Ebenezer. It was a place of defeat. It was a place of humiliation here at Ebenezer. Uh, these Israelites, we need to know this, that, that they were not walking with God. At this particular time in the history of Israel, they had embraced the false gods of the nations around them. The things that God had warned them about, they ignored God's warnings. They ignored God's warnings, and, and of course, they were humiliated and defeated, and, and even this holy artifact from Joshua and Moses' time failed to bring them victory. It remained in the enemy hands for seven months. Now, this is still the ark that belongs to God. As a matter of fact, it belongs in the Holy of Holies over in Jerusalem or Shiloh, right? Uh, and so the Philistines go seven months with this ark, and it's causing them all kinds of troubles. All kinds of troubles to the point where they're like, okay, uh, we are, uh, we're, we're done with this ark. Uh, we, we, we can't handle it anymore. And they brought it to a place, and we're going to talk about that, Kerjeth Jerim. But here's the problem. The, the nation of Israel was giving God lip service. They were worshiping other gods. They had idols in their tents. They had idols in their homes, okay? But when they got defeated, they went to get a Bible. They were defeated, and, and they went to get a, a, a cross on their necklace. And they thought, well, this will fix everything. They, they, they were humiliated and defeated, and they thought, well, maybe if I just go to church, that'll fix everything. And, and having a Bible and having a cross and, and going to church, those are all arguably good things. But if the heart is not behind it, 
It means nothing. You could come to church every single Sunday. I knew a man who came to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, went out on visitation on Saturday, came to argue on Friday, and then Monday through Saturday, he was beating his wife. You can come to church all you want. And he was unrepentant. In fact, this man used Bible verses to further abuse his wife. To prove that he was unrepentant, he twisted the scriptures to control and to gaslight this poor girl. That's a long time ago, and it was a lot of difficulty. Well, how many of us give God lift service? How many times do we try too hard instead of relying on his nature and nurture to help us through? They made a God out of the ark, but they missed the God of the ark. They made a God out of the ark, but they missed the God of the ark. There are times in churches that we become like that. We, we, we struggle right now with some in our church that have worshipped the style of the church instead of the God of the church. There are people that worship ministries instead of the God of the ministry. You follow? We have to be careful that our heart is knit to God. And they suffered an utter and absolute horrific failure. Now, seven months later, the ark comes to kirjath Jerem and, and uh, came and took the ark of the Lord, brought it into the house of Abinadab on a hill, and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. Where does the ark of the Lord belong? I, I said it a few moments ago. Where does it belong? It's got to be in the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies in the nation of Israel, back in the Old Testament, the high priest would enter once a year into the Holy of Holies and make this sacrifice for the nation of Israel, and they would receive pardon for their sin. And he would meet with God where God's uh, glory would come between the angels, the seraphim, that were uh, molded on top of that ark. Well, now that's not happening, is it? Without the ark, the presence of God is not in the Holy of Holies. They're not following God. They're not obeying God. Nobody came up to get the ark. They just left it there. And we're going to find out how long they left it there. So the ark remained in Kerjath Jerem a long time. Would you argue that's a long time? 20 years. 20 years. Now, the house of Israel lamented after those 20 years after the Lord. That word lament is indicative of, of repentance. The nation of Israel began to understand that they were out of sorts with God. They were out of sorts with their creator. They were disobedient and they were rebellious and, and they still had these false gods. And, 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 and so Samuel, the prophet, he spoke to all the house of Israel saying, if, if you return to the Lord with all your heart and put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites, the children of Israel, put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths and they serve the Lord only. This is an amazing moment in the nation of Israel. They're having a revival They're repenting. They're getting their heart 
right with God. And Samuel said, gather all of Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said, and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid. Why do you think they might have been afraid? What happened 20 years ago? They got slaughtered. Slaughtered. So now they're like, here we go again. So the children of Israel said to Samuel... Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he might save us from the hand of the Philistine. Now, who are they looking to for their salvation? The Lord. They're no longer looking to the ark, right? They're no longer looking to their weapons and their arms and their strength. They say to Samuel, please, please pray that God would deliver us from these Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now, as Samuel was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Bethkar. So, we see a great victory now where there was once a great defeat, right? A great victory where there was once a great defeat, and it came from the thunder of God. And God's voice is described as a waterfall. And, and, and one of my, my I think you've, you've heard me for a while, like a bucket list for me, one of my bucket lists was to go to Niagara Falls. And, and I had a chance to go to a conference over there in Rochester, and my wife went with me, and, and we went to Niagara Falls. And man, if you have not been to Niagara Falls, put that on your bucket list. It is, it is one of the most incredible experiences you're ever going to have. We went in the winter. And it like had its own weather system. It was like snowing from all the vapor coming up from the falls. But the other thing that was so amazing was the sound. I mean, it's, it's awe-inspiring. I can understand how Israel would say like God's voice sounds like that of many waters. It was absolutely awe-inspiring. So here are the Philistine horde. And they're going to go up and they're feeling pretty confident. And then they hear this thunder. You ever heard thunder woke, up, woke you up out of a deep sleep? And then it keeps going and your heart's kind of like, what was that? Right? And then you're an adult, so you realize, oh, it was just thunder. These Philistines fled. And then the Israel following God took care of business. Now, I'm going to continue on to this idea of an Ebenezer. So we know that Ebenezer was a place of defeat. It was a place of humiliation. It was a place of absolute failure. But then, in verse 12, we see this. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they didn't come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel... And this wonderful, we're restored 
to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. This was before Israel had kings. They had judges. And he went year from year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel and built an altar to the Lord. Twenty years later, twenty years later, folks, some of you have fallen and failed, and you've given up, and you're wondering, is, it, is there still mercy for me? Is there still grace for me? Is it too late for me? When I was pastoring in Lighthouse, Pastor Elam used to call me and say, hey, I know a guy, he's up there in Pentecook. His name is Len Cassidy. Can you try to find him? Can you try to find him? Uh, He was like one of my sons in the Lord, and he walked away from God somewhere around 20 years ago. He was a pastor. He got hurt, and he turned his back on God. His own testimony was when his grandson was in Boston Children's Hospital, he couldn't even pray to God because he was so bitter against God. He couldn't even pray for his own grandson. Even that trial was not enough to turn this man's heart back to God. It took more time. It took more time. Well, we tracked him down, and we found him. And 20 years later, I remember him coming in to uh, Lighthouse Baptist Church's um, little upper room where we met in the Bosquin uh, town hall. We rented space. And he came in there, and he was just a horrible mess. He was ugly. I mean, he's still ugly. But, um, sorry, Len. But he was, uh, he, his hair was all over the place. And he was, he was just like a kid who was rebellious and wanted to push all your buttons. You ever meet somebody like that? Ever meet a child that that's like their specialty? Like they have a talent for pushing your buttons? That's what he was trying to do. And he was watching me intently. Well, he came back. And he came back. And he came back. And what happened was the grace of God poured into him and the mercy of God poured into him to the point where he was so overwhelmed that God still loved him and would forgive him and use him even though he had turned his back on God for 20 years. Folks, this is what Israel went through. For 20 years, they lived in that defeat. But during that 20 years, Samuel, the prophet, is preaching and teaching and and challenging. And eventually, Israel begins to come to their senses, and they turn back to God. 20 years later, they turn back to God. That is called repentance, repentance. Do you need to repent this morning? Do you need to repent this morning? Can I tell you that the enemy's not happy? The enemy's not happy when we repent. I know of someone that has been trying to follow God and and they're in the middle of a, a terrible trial, and the enemy's not happy that they've been trying to follow God. He's angry, and God is allowing him to do some terrible things because God is sovereign, and he allows us to go through trials 
for our good. So what the Bible teaches us, all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things, even the hard things. Repentance brings forgiveness and restoration, but it also brings the enemy. He comes calling. In this case, this nation of Israel was gathered in Mizpah, and, and they were repenting before the Lord, and, and they were getting their hearts right with God, and, and they were starting to really be serious with God. Anyone ever get to that point where you're just like, I want God in my life, I'm done screwing around, and you start to read your Bible, but not just because you have to, because you want to, and you want to get close to God, and you start praying, maybe in a way that you haven't prayed in a long, long time, and, and you start coming to church regularly, even start serving God in church, and then the next thing you know, oh, hell breaks loose in your life. Anybody ever notice that? Come on. Why? Because the enemy is ticked. He doesn't want you serving Jesus. I see in young Christians that when they start following God, uh, they start noticing everybody else that's not. And then the enemy comes in and uses that and turns them into judgmental believers. Instead of remembering the amazing grace that purchased them, They begin to look at everyone else and forget that the same grace that saved their souls saved everybody else that they know who is a Christian, and that everyone is on a different different place in their journey. Well, in this case, the Philistines thought they were going to repeat the battle of 20 years ago. Let me tell you, if God is giving you victory, the enemy wants to take it away. If God is giving you victory, the enemy is going to come at you and he is going to want to take that victory away. And he believes he can. He's absolutely confident that he can. And so as you repent, be aware. The enemy is going to come at you. And uh, the enemy came at them. But what happened? Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Instead of running back to defeat, instead of doing the same thing they had done 20 years before, they turned, they turned back to Samuel and said, pray for us, pray for us, pray for us, that the Lord would deliver us from the hand of these Philistines. Pray for us. And Samuel made a sacrifice and, and he prayed for Israel and they had a mighty victory. The place of defeat, the Ebenezer of defeat became a monument of victory. Thus far, thus, this is what Samuel said, so far the Lord has helped us. Thus far the Lord has helped us. He hasn't failed me yet. This is what he's saying. Up until this time, up until this time, The Lord has helped us. And so he builds a monument. He takes a stone and he sets it up as a memorial so that the children of Israel and their children and their children's children can turn back and and look and see in that valley that stone that was set up so that it would remind them that God is on your side and that he helped you before And so you can count on him to help you now. And you can count on him to help you later in life. It's amazing to me. Thus far the Lord has helped us. Or maybe you could say he hasn't failed me yet. He hasn't failed me up until this point. And he won't 
fail me ever. Thus far the Lord has helped us is a shout of great is thy faithfulness. That's what that's about. And it's a memorial. A place of defeat becomes a place of great victory. They changed their actions. They didn't rely on superstition. They didn't rely on themselves. They didn't rub the genie's lamp. They cried out to Samuel to pray for them. They repented. They removed the obstruction between them and their God. There's an old hymn we used to sing called Nothing Between. Nothing between myself and my Savior. Nothing between. You're sitting here today and you've come to church and I applaud you. Man, I want everybody to come to church. Coming to church is awesome. But are you coming to church to play church? Are you coming to church to appease your guilty conscience? Are you coming to church to just to get something instead of worshiping the God of all creation? Why are you here? Why are you here? We need to remove those things that come between us and our Lord. And, and when we do, we see that the, thus far the Lord has helped us. And, and we need to raise our Ebenezer. Uh, an Ebenezer can be anything that reminds you of what God has done in your life. You know, I talked about my wedding ring. 31 years. 31 years this past August we've been married. 31 years of marital bliss. For Trish. It's true. It's true. <laughs> That's my wife. I'm not in the dark. Can I tell you something? I've never slept on the couch unless one of us was so sick we couldn't sleep. I've never slept in the doghouse. And I know you're looking at me, how'd you get away with that? Because Trish is merciful. That's what the gospel is about. That's what marriage represents, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't put each other in the doghouse. Why would you do that to the person that 31 years ago you committed to serve? That's what marriage is, by the way. Serve one another. Even when the other person is cantankerous, cranky, and, and I'm talking about me. We went out to dinner with Angel and Kim last night, and we are kind of talking about that. Without God, uh, we would be done years ago without God because he has centered us. We serve together, we worship together, raise our kids together. So your ring can be an Ebenezer, and, and this ring reminds me of of that, that wedding day. Remember that, babe? Uh, I assume. Um, we got married in the old building, the hall. And I remember standing on the platform, and Pastor Z was our pastor, and he was trying to make me so nervous. He's like, oh my gosh, Eric, look how beautiful that bride. I've never seen such a beautiful bride in all my years. I'm just like, mm-hmm. Now remember, I used to be super shy, so this was not my favorite moment. But I remember that. It's a, it's a memorial to when God brought me my person and he bonded us together. It's a memorial. Now, we've had good times and bad times, but this reminds me of that. This reminds me of that. There are other memorials I have in my life. Some memorials that I have are songs. A song can be 
a memorial. I was having suicidal ideations, not suicidal, just having thoughts of it, back about six or seven years ago. Yeah, and I was the pastor. And uh, it was during a time when our eldest daughter was having her worst season. And I was up in my uh, office upstairs, and I was looking at my computer screens, and I was thinking, man, I could just end it now and get out of here because I'm going to heaven, and I don't need to deal with all this stuff anymore. And, and it was really bad. And, and then God just kind of tapped me on the shoulder and reminded me that um, my kids having a crappy dad was better than my kids having no dad. And I said, well, I guess. <laughs> and then I started listening to some music. And one of my favorite artists is Stephen Curtis Chapman. And I'm, I was listening to his Glorious Something album. And, uh, and there was a song that came on. And that song is Take Another Step. Take Another Step. Take Another Step. And there's a couple of lines in that song that talk about when you can't see the end. Well, you can't see. Take Another Step. That song is an Ebenezer in my life. That song is an Ebenezer in my life. It's a memorial to a time where God met with me. Raise your Ebenezers, folks. Listen, Ebenezers are important to the people of God. When you walk out of this building, out of this room, I want you to just glance toward the window on the right side. And you all see that dresser? How many of you guys have noticed that weird dresser in our lobby? How many of you know what it is there for? Does anybody know what it's there for? Some of you know. Heather knows. Pat knows. You guys know. Years ago, we had lost our way as a church, and we became very legalistic. You, Chloe was saying, I just think it's so funny with you standing on the stage with a sweater and jeans. I'm like, why do you think that's funny? She's like, because you would never not be wearing a suit. And I'm like, you're right. We were legalistic. We were controlling, and we'd lost our way. We'd lost grace. We'd, we'd, we, we did a series called Agent of Grace, and a whole series was meant to remind people of our purpose, which is to be agents of grace in the community, bringing the gospel of Jesus to people that need it. That was the whole purpose of that series, was I wanted to deploy the church to be agents of grace to the lost and dying world. Well, as I started to write that sermon, God's speaking to my heart, and he's like, you, you can't deploy agents of grace if they don't know what grace is. And I was like, mm, that's a really good point. And so I read a great book by Charles Swindoll called um, The Grace Awakening. I recommend it to every single one of you. Read Chuck Swindoll, The Grace Awakening. And God used that to stir grace into our church, but that wasn't enough. I was on vacation down in Florida, and, and I woke up at 4 a.m. And, and, and if you know me, I, I, I sometimes I don't, I don't like confrontation, but I do like to fight. And so um, I was writing this article that I was going to send to these legalistic publications, and I was going to set them straight. Now, it was called Operation Renovation. Operation Renovation, removing man's way and returning to God's way. And I'm writing this out, and I'm, I'm typing away, and it's like 4 or 4.30 in the morning, and God's like, this isn't for them. This is for you and your church. This is for Emmanuel. Don't worry about the rest of them. 
You take care of the church I gave you. Operation Renovation is for Emmanuel. So I'm on vacation, and I start writing this series out, Operation Renovation, sometime around 2011. And, um, and so I call Rick up. I'm like, hey, boss, I need a dilapidated piece of furniture, something that's just all beat. Can you, can you find me something that's all beat, and I want you to start to refinish it on the stage? Um, that was like three days before I came back. And Rick just did his miracle working that he does, and he found this antique uh, type of dresser or whatever, and the drawers were falling apart, and it was nasty, and it was terrible. And we put it on the stage here. And as I went through this series on operation renovation, removing man's way, returning to God's way, every time the church came in, they saw one more piece of that furniture had been refinished. They saw that all the stain and the lacquer and stuff had been scraped off and stripped down, and they saw the beautiful wood that came beneath it, and, and little by little, they watched that dresser become something beautiful and alive, so to speak, again. And that's what happened to our church. I have so many new people in our church today. Can I ask some of you guys, when you came into the church, did you feel like, oh, what a legalistic, mean-spirited church? Did you feel that? I mean, you all felt that. You said no? You guys didn't feel that? That's because God is faithful. God is faithful. And that dresser, when you walk out of this room and you see that, that is an Ebenezer for Emmanuel. That if you will follow his word and you will follow him and you will worship him, he will restore you. You notice in this passage that we read, that uh, after they defeated the Philistines, they regained the territory that the Philistines had taken. Did you notice that? Folks, raise your Ebenezer. Remember the times where God has restored you, has rescued you, has saved you, not only uh, your eternal life, but along the way. Remember those times that God has visited with you and marked them somehow, Right? And then this, this is a really interesting thing. The Ebenezer of the cross. And I, we have this cross here. I don't imagine that this cross is ever coming down. The cross is the most important symbol. It's the most important Ebenezer of the church, the empty cross. Because it does remind us of our salvation. The most fascinating thing that I found as I was studying this week is the literal, interp- the literal, literal interpretation of Ebenezer. Are you ready for it? This is, this, this is awesome. Stone of help. Stone of help. How many of y'all know another a title for Jesus that might resonate with that phrase, stone of help? He is the rock of our salvation. So when we look back in the Old Testament and we see him raising up this stone of help, right? What we see is a type of Christ, the rock of our salvation. Folks, don't ever forget that day, October 7th, 1987. Maybe you don't have your date down, but I'll tell you, if you know Jesus, you should know when you met him. It's kind of got to be unforgettable. I remember October 7th, 1987, that I came into Emmanuel, and there was an evangelist preaching, and his name was Tommy Stone, and he was a big, goofy Texan, 10 feet tall, 3 feet wide. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but I was only 17. 
And he was amazing, and he was one of my heroes, and he came and he was preaching, and he said, do you know for certain, I mean 100% sure, do you know for certain that you have a home in heaven when you die? Are you absolutely certain today that if you left this church and you went home and went to bed and you closed your eyes and you died in your sleep that you'd wake up with Jesus? Do you know that? And I'm sitting there going, well, I think so. And, and I, uh, some of you have heard me say this, I had a hope so hand. How many of you guys have been here when I do an invitation and I ask you to raise your hand if you know Jesus? And I ask you to raise your hand if you're not sure. That's what he was doing. That meant the world to me. And I sat there with what I call a hope so hand because I said, one of the times that I asked Jesus to save me, he must have done it. Folks, if you're asking Jesus to save you and you're not believing that he will do it, he won't do it. If you're asking Jesus to save you, and you say all the right words, but it's not mixed with repentance and faith, he's not saving you. And I knew that in my heart, and I kind of said, well, one of those thousands of times, he must have done it, and so I'd raise my hand. And then Tommy kept on preaching and kept on preaching, and finally I got up and I went down to the altar, and, and in my particular case, I just didn't feel good enough. I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel like God wanted to save me. I knew he could. I believed he could, but I didn't know he wanted to. Why would he want me? I was bullied and picked on. I was picked last for kickball. My dog was my best friend. Well, actually, I'd met Trish, so she was my best friend, and then Titan was second. I have more pictures of Edgar in my phone than my kids. I don't know what that means. But I was at that altar and I had my head bowed. And I was in a wrestling match with Jesus. Somebody came and said, hey, you need some help? And I'm like, I'm all set because I'm from New England. And that's what we say. I'm all set. It's, it's in our bones. I'm all set. I don't need anybody's help. I continued to struggle, and I was arguing with Jesus. I'm like, I, I, I've tried to fix myself. I've tried to change. I've tried to change. I've tried to change, and I just can't do it. And he would say, I know you can't do it. That's why I died for you, because you can't do it. You can't fix yourself. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, but you don't understand. And then I went on. I, 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 I tried to turn over a new leaf. I've tried this. I've tried that. And he's like, I know all about it. That's why I died for you, because you can't fix you. And we had this argument going on for a while until my father-in-law, Ken, came and knelt beside me. And he said, what's going on, Eric? What's going on? And I said, I'm just not sure I'm saved. And I've prayed so many times. I feel like if I pray again, it's just going to be a mockery and lack of faith. And he said something like, it'll be more of a lack of faith if you don't settle this and if you get up and walk out of here the same way. And so he said, I'm not going to pray with you. I'm not going to give you the words to pray. You've been around long enough. You do business with God right now. And so I bowed my head in the best way I knew how. I said, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, obviously. I think we've just had that discussion. I can't fix myself. But I believe that you died on the cross for my sin and that you rose from the grave. And what he finally convinced me of was that he wanted to save me. He wanted to. And that was the hump that I had to get over. Well, I knew I was a sinner, but I wasn't sure he wanted to. And he finally convinced me that, Eric, just ask me to and I will. And from that moment on, I asked him to be my savior. I asked God to 
accept me as his child. And he did that day, October 7th, 1987. That is an Ebenezer for me. It's my Ebenezer. Someone texted me the other day and they said, I know you're a preacher, but do you, did you ever have doubts? And I said, yeah, sure I have. You know what I do with the devil when I have doubts? I drag him, I drag him to my Ebenezer. <laughs> I take him by the scruff of the neck and I drag him to the stone of my help. And I say, take it up with Jesus. Take it up with Jesus. Folks, you need Ebenezer in your life. You need to know when God has moved in your life and you need to memorialize those things because hell is coming to destroy you and you need to know that thus far the Lord has helped me. You need to know that because you're going to fail. You're going to fall. And you're going to wonder, is God done with me? And I want you to take this term and I want you to remember, if you're not dead, God's not done. Raise your Ebenezer. Get your song. Write it in a calendar. Refinish a dresser. Do something to remind yourself of the amazing love, grace, mercy, and faithfulness of God. Hey, all thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to know more, please go to our website, emmanuelhooksit.com, where you'll find helpful links and resources and where you can contact us directly. That web address again is emmanuelhooksit.com. Bless God, get out there, and be the blessing.